0: Our mental health journeys rarely ever take a linear path. We have our ups and downs. One day, everything might feel crystal clear, and then the next, you might find yourself feeling like you're starting all over again. Managing addiction and recovery often takes this winding path. In fact, 40 to 60% of people with substance use disorders relapse at least once on their journey. And in certain cases, it's actually safer for someone to continue using substances while managing risk, instead of just quitting cold turkey. Everyone's journey is different, but with any mental health condition, there are treatment options. There's an opportunity for a healthier, joyful tomorrow if we just take it one day at a time. I'm Frances Lees. And this is Turning Points, a show about navigating mental health sponsored by Point32 Health. Brandon Little has been in recovery from addiction to alcohol for the past 18 years. What keeps him going is finding a sense of purpose and expressing himself through music. He has a heart for helping people and a passion for Boston. He was the founding policy director of Boston's Office of Recovery Service. But way before that, he was a punk rocker figuring out life on the streets of Boston. We talk about how he grew up around alcoholism and how he approaches sobriety today. Brendan, you have been in recovery for 18 years. That's an amazing achievement. And we all know that mental health is not a linear path. Life is not a linear path and specifically addiction. So I'd love for us to start At the beginning of your story with addiction, when did you realize that you had an addiction?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I started using substances when I was 11 years old, so very young. But prior to that, I always knew that I was at risk for it. I had seen it in my family, just a lot of alcoholism, a lot of mental illness, a lot of challenges. My father left the family when I was two weeks old, and he was a lifelong alcoholic, I remember my mother saying, you know, you're going to have to be careful with with alcohol when you get older because it's in your family. And I remember hearing that all the time. Even people that I knew knew that uncles had lost their licenses for DUIs or just knowing people, family members who, who went to 12-step meetings, AA meetings. And I remember going to meetings and I was like six, seven years old and it was back in the day when they would smoke in the meetings. So I always kind of had a sense that, A, there was this thing like addiction or problematic use with substances and that there was a place to go, that there was another side of it, that there were people who were living in recovery. And I've known that since I can remember, I think, for a long time. But for me, I had an older sister who's five years older than me, and she was involved with substances at the age people usually get involved with substances, like 16, 17 years old. And I really looked up to her and very much kind of followed in her footsteps. She was into punk rock music and hanging out downtown with the street kids and stuff. That became something that I looked up to and was really excited by. I started doing guitar lessons downtown when I was a kid, and I would just spend any free time I could hanging out with kids who were into punk rock music. I found it to be a place where I felt really happy and accepted. It was one of the most diverse places I'd ever been, kids from all over the city, from all different ethnicities, backgrounds, styles of music that they listened to. In many ways, it was very positive, and it was it actually opened my world up a lot. But paired along with that was a lot of problematic substance use to deal with the pain and trauma of growing up in a dysfunctional family. By 13, I was getting arrested for low-level stuff, for drinking in public, truancy type stuff. By 14, I had tried to steal a bike, and which is a little bit more serious crime. I had a judge named Judge Harris, who was here in Boston, who said that this kid needs long-term treatment. He's not a criminal. And this was after various stints in juvenile detention and such. And I went into treatment for about a year in New Hampshire. They signed me over to the Department of Children and Families. And that was really my first view of recovery, was that program and beginning to see that there was another way of life that I could understand. I'm a musician, I had my guitar with me, I was always playing music. My adolescent years were very up and down, very up and down, but that was the genesis of it.
0: I appreciate you sharing that because there's a lot of stigma when it comes to addiction. When you take a look at the environment that you grew in, there was so much influence and so much energies that would say, this is a huge possibility. And when we look at it from that angle, it's our opportunity to be a bit more compassionate with how this whole process is so layered when it comes to addiction. When you went into this residential treatment facility in New Hampshire as a young teenager, what do you think was the most helpful in that process for you? I'm sure you got talk therapy, medication, because this was like early 2000s. What was most helpful for you in that experience?
1: I think what was most helpful for me was a sense of quiet. And honestly, a sense of my family is very complicated. And there are some really great things about my family that helped me. My mother really valued education. And she tried to get me into good schools, even though we were poor. But there was a lot more dysfunction and dysregulation and a lot of problems. Actually being away from my family for, I think, in a way, it was traumatic because I was away from my people and from friends and people that I knew, but in a way it was healing because I was born and raised in the city and like I'm suddenly in the middle of the woods in New Hampshire. It was a reflective time. It wasn't perfect. And I don't think that now being an adult who's worked in this field of substance use treatment and policy, I don't think that it should be what we do for kids. We shouldn't send them away for a year to the middle of the woods alone. But for me, I had time to play music I had time to begin to get a sense of recovery, attend meetings, see that there was other people in recovery. And I think the biggest thing, which is the marker through all my childhood and all my adolescence and young adulthood, was that I was connected to positive adults who cared about me. And because I think that I had a very limited relationship with my father, a very problematic relationship with my mother, a lot of the genuine care and affection and support and guidance I got was from other caring adults, teachers, social workers, staff who worked in the facilities I was at. I remember every single one of them. I accrued wisdom from each one of them. And cumulatively, it was like paving a road. You know what I mean? It was like each step along the way, those people had an impact to help me get to a place of wellness and recovery that I'm in now. I think that was the biggest takeaway was just continuing to have space away from dysfunction and connection to positive adults who were caring and didn't need to numb out with substances.
0: When you transitioned from the facility back to Boston, what was that like for you?
1: I was 14 when I went there and I turned 15 there. It was crazy because I was like starting high school, coming back. It was just very surreal, very strange. But it was also exciting because... The thing that I've done ever since I was a young teenager, thirteen, fourteen years old, was I played music on the street. I would hang out on Newberry Street and play music for money. It was partly for money, but it was also like a community of musicians and just kind of like there's no social media, so you have to go out to meet people. What I think was really critical for me and to my success was that I kept that connection. So I stayed on the street. Some of the people that I would use with, they were still out there. But that was a connection for me to kind of stay connected to the community that I felt an affinity with and I felt solace in when I was really going through hard times. I proceeded to do well for a little while, then relapsed, and then it was kind of up and down. I had a very turbulent adolescence where I was kind of in and out of homelessness. I was recording music and I was sought by a producer who saw me playing on the street and I started recording music more seriously in studios and traveling to New York City. It was this very strange life where I was simultaneously in Soho in Manhattan recording at a studio and going out to sushi dinners with producers and then I can't afford my Fenghua bus ticket home. Yeah. It was crazy. And sleeping on couches or not having anywhere to stay. So it was this very strange life. It wasn't very sustainable. At 18, I knew the good thing was that again, from my early childhood, then in my teenage years, early teenage years, I was acquainted with another side of living and knew that there was a place to go when you needed help. And for me, that was 12-step communities. The turning point for me was really when I met somebody who I really liked, who is a musician, and I was doing music at the time. He's a producer. And we were talking about doing something together. He said he was in recovery and went to 12-step group. I was like, oh yeah, I tried that. That's BS. That's a cult. Just kind of like lost. I was, at this point, I was really lost in my substance use. His response was like, oh yeah, no worries. It's not for everybody. Like, it works for me. Let's go do this music. He didn't chastise me. He didn't try to shame me or yell at me. That wasn't the end. He just saw through my nonsense a little bit and was able to just kind of still connect with me. Again, we started doing music together. And then one night I saw him. I was playing for money all day and I didn't make what I needed to get the substances I needed to feel okay at the end of the day. I ran into him outside of an ATM And I asked him to borrow $20, very non-judgmentally, like kindly. He just lent it to me, knowing that I probably wouldn't pay him back. When I was really ready and done using and wanted to get into recovery, he's the one I called. To me, the biggest takeaway from that is that he was caring, he was kind, he was non-judgmental. He saw me as a human and didn't judge me or put all these things or stipulations on our friendship. And that, to me, was somebody who I could trust. That was a key turning point for me.
0: Yeah, and we don't go back to the people that chastise us or that make us feel like shame is such a debilitating emotion when it comes to progress. Can you describe what that day was like to make that phone call, what you're feeling, what you're thinking how did that transition take place?
1: Yeah, it was funny because a lot of people talk about there was some big instance that happened or what some big thing that was their bottom or whatever some people call it in 12 step groups. But for me it was just I was just really tired. I was staying with a friend on his couch. You sleep on a couch for like 3 months, your neck hurts, you're tired. It's like every night I'm drinking myself to sleep using substances. I just remember like being at a house party just trying to be the life of the party or whatever, trying to connect with people and people looking at me with disdain and just kind of like embarrassed about how I was being. I had been graced, I think, enough to meet this man, this guy, Daniel, who was the one that I reached out to. And I had a lifeline out. I just called him and he's like, I'm so happy to hear from you. Of course, there's a meeting tonight. Come meet with me. That was it. From there, I just latched onto him. And so much of the early days, <laughs> It's not intellectual, it's not philosophical, it's just pure, you eat Kat bars, drink a lot of soda, just sugar and sensory. He would take me to the mall, just go smell colognes, let's go to the movies, let's go get Indian food. Like, it's sensory. Cause you're so used to just being numbed out and not experiencing the world as it truly is. I needed everything times a hundred to compensate for that. The biggest thing I think is whatever keeps somebody in recovery or substance-free, whatever their definition of recovery is, don't take that away from them. Even if it's using drugs, you never know what might be saving somebody's life. To you, it may look like, oh, I can't believe they're doing this thing. People use substances for a reason. In my experience, the primary reason is life is devastating. It's usually people who have experienced Serious amounts of trauma, serious amounts of poverty, structural racism or bias or discrimination. Whatever it is that's helping that person, if they need to smoke cigarettes all day or eat a bunch of candy or whatever it is. They've stopped using heroin, but they're smoking weed all day. To me, it's like whatever is getting somebody through the day, I try not to judge that and really support them for me in the early days, it wasn't about contemplating the reasons why or anything like that. It was just getting through the days however I could. The real deeper work came later.
0: That makes sense because you are so disconnected from your body in a way that most people don't really comprehend. And so when you're making a transition like that and you're in recovery, it's all about reconnecting with your body in a different way, reestablishing a new relationship and a new narrative with your body. People want to jump to like, oh, let's talk about all the... We can't really talk until we feel regulated in our nervous system. And so it makes sense that for that time period, that is what you needed. You had this person that was your lifeline but another thing that you did, and you mentioned it earlier, that was part of your lifeline is music. And I was listening to, you have a very angelic voice too, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it made me think about Elizabeth Gilbert. And I love sharing this over and over again, because one of the things she always says is don't waste your suffering. And the best thing that you can do is to transmute your pain. It's almost like alchemizing it, recreating this pain into something that is just beautiful. Can you share with us, how music became your lifeline to recovery.
1: I really appreciate your characterization of that because that's how I think about it as well. I started writing songs when I was 11, 12 years old. Music has always been a lifeline for me and always been a form of connection. I would literally stand on a street corner and sing. That's how I met my wife, my partner of 20 years. That's how I met so many of my friends. For me, music is about, I just need to do it. I'll always be writing. I'm always writing. Sometimes people are like, man, you write really sad songs. They can be a little sad or the topics can be a little sad. But to me, it's so joyful to get that stuff out and synthesize it. There's so much chaos. Trauma is, by nature, very chaotic and not linear. It doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end in your brain. I think when you put it into a narrative via a story or writing or a song, where it has, here's the first part, here's the second part, here's how it evolves. You can begin to have some semblance of control over it through this other medium. Then other people can hear it and connect with it. The songs are almost like little breadcrumbs of wisdom or information. It's like a conversation with myself sometimes. It's a way that I can kind of tap into reminders for myself of what I've been through, what sustains me.
0: To me, it's it's your spirit talking. Sometimes intellectually, Finding the words can be very difficult, but in an artistic form, the language just comes very clear. It's almost like making sense, taking all the pieces and building something from that. It definitely makes sense, and it's why people create. Absolutely. When did you really begin to feel stability in your life, and what did that look like for you?
1: I think there was various stages without hyperbole or exaggeration. I was convinced that I was going to die before I was 18 or before I was 21. That didn't seem like a problem to me in a way. Like, I felt it was just, I was really on this very destructive path. At uh, 14 years old, I was sleeping in tunnels and on the sidewalk. And then all of a sudden, you're in recovery. You're 18 years old, which I was. And it's like, oh. I had dropped out of high school because I was pursuing music in New York. On paper, I'm a high school dropout I was living on a couch. The prospects don't look good. I'm in early recovery. I have no real work experience. Where I found community was through 12-step community and through friends and through my partner, where I was just able to kind of cobble together a life. This person here who got me, I could get a job at a restaurant. Then I worked there. Then I could get an office job. Like, oh, wow, I could work in an office. Filing papers at a job through somebody who was in a 12-step meeting. And I'm a little bit more confident enough, or maybe I can go get my GED. So I do that. All the while, I'm thinking, this isn't for me. I can't do this. I'm not able to do this. But one time I had a really great conversation with my now wife. I was young in my early 20s. And I was like, all my friends that I grew up with, they're all graduating college now. I'm going to be like that 25-year-old in college. That's crazy. Just thinking how embarrassing that would be. This is all sounds absurd to me now. But then it was a really big deal. And I remember she said, like, you're going to be 25 anyway. So you're going to be 25 and working in a restaurant what seems like a worse path to you? And I was like, all right. <laughs> that was a really good point. That's awesome. You have a really smart woman. <laughs> yeah, I do, yeah. She's very smart. There's all these things along the way, like that stays with me forever. You're going to be 25 anyway. I went back to school. I applied to get into UMass Boston and started there. And then around that same time, I started working with young people. So first I started working with young people who lived in public housing in Cambridge. It was just like an after-school program. That was great. That just really solidified that I wanted to do a job where I helped people. Because frankly, I wasn't good at anything else other than music and a job where I helped people. Because I tried all sorts of other stuff and I couldn't care enough about it. didn't keep my attention. It was also healing for me because like, I was able to be a caring adult for kids who came from various degrees of instability, various degrees of neglect or abuse, whatever it may be. Then I got a job working for the city of Boston with court and gang-involved youth. And that's really where I kind of locked in and was like, all right, these, these kids are my kids that I really care about. I was in no way involved with gangs or gang violence or any violence really as a teenager. But I would literally go process kids for the program as an adult. I would go into the actual DYS facilities that I was in. I did that several times. That was like crazy, just really full circle.
0: I was going to say, that must be wild to walk back in there like that.
1: It was crazy and it was very anxiety producing. I struggled for many years with like serious anxiety. You know, when (laughs) there's people like, oh, I'm a little anxious. And then there's, I feel like I'm going to die every day. That was just a trauma that was working through, you know, I came to see that anxiety is a good thing because it was really like you're safe enough to feel now. So the terror you felt. You should have felt for years and years and years, but you couldn't because you were needing to eat Kit Kat bars and watch movies and just check out however you could. Now you can feel it. It's safe enough to feel it. But yeah, that was a trip. And it was really crazy to be able to go work with those kids. That is really what kind of set me onto the path where I ultimately ended, where I'm at now. Because I started to get a lay of the land of the city, of different city departments, of government, of pros and cons of government, city programs. That's when I started to really feel stability. But all throughout, I don't think I've had as much mental clarity and peace and stability as I have for the last few years because everything's delayed. Because I started using substances at a period where your brain is developing so quickly as a a young adolescent. Everything was delayed for me. Going back to school was delayed. But I think also just like adulthood, In many ways, I was an old soul, very, very young. But in other ways, it took me a long, long time to just have peace with myself. I think becoming a father was one of the biggest turning points for me with that. Because I just had to do a lot of healing. That's the best thing that's ever happened to me, is becoming a dad. Because I've really been able to reckon with my childhood and the harder stuff, the roots of why I use substances and the roots of why I chose to escape like right in front of you when you got a little person there who's in pain and needs help. And you have to sit with that pain in a caring way. And you have to be a caring adult. And you have to say it's okay and take deep breaths and hold their body close to your body. There's this weird thing that happened for me where it's like, I'm also doing that for myself. It's strange. It was kind of simultaneously caring for this little person, but then also recognizing that there was a child. That didn't get needs that and that I have to be the one to do that as an adult now. That's been, I think, the most healing thing. That in years of therapy, (laughs) many years of therapy and many years of being around supportive people who are similarly on a recovery path.
0: Part of the healing journey is also how do I get out of my own head and out of my own self and help somebody else in that process? Because when we do that, that also helps to heal different parts of ourselves. You having a child, it's another lesson to go through because now it's like, okay, little Brandon needed some of this love too. Little Brandon needed somebody to hold them and say all these wonderful, caring things to them. Now you get to re-experience that in real time, genuinely experience that. All these little stages was really preparing you for this day. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your relationship between purpose and healing, because through this journey, it seems that you've you cemented in, in what you're here to do. And how has that really supported your mental health?
1: The key to healing is having a purpose. And I think that that's one of the biggest things that is missed in a lot of the treatment infrastructure that we have. People will say, oh, well, we have this many detox beds or we have this or we have that. So much of this is economic and so much of this is purpose driven. One of the biggest things was like when I no longer had to worry about groceries, when I knew that I had rent or like I could pay my mortgage, now that I'm a homeowner. That stuff is monumental. I think that it's often overlooked. People talk about therapy or supports, like that's all great. You can get most of that stuff for reduced or for free. You can cobble that together. There's something about having the stability of material needs that you need. But I think for me, so much of my healing was rooted in my purpose and why I feel like I'm here is which is to help people. Because I've struggled in my 18 years. I define as being 18 years in recovery, but like I had a slip of like five years ago with not my primary substance, but another substance. But it was really like a time where I was just going through a lot of loss and trauma and had lost a young person that I cared about. And then my first sponsor in recovery actually died of an overdose within one day of each other. And I didn't realize it then, but I just kind of spiraled out to me. That was something I couldn't talk about for a long time, but I say 18 years of recovery for two reasons. One, because It is, relapse is part of recovery. Also, the primary substances that I used that were the most problematic for me, I didn't use. In the field, they call that harm reduction. Are you using harm reduction to kind of get through it? I think for me, now I talk about it because to me, shame is deadly and shame is horrible. And I was ashamed for a long time because I was able to go out there and say, oh, I'm the success story. You know, I had a really hard adolescence and now I'm an adult and everything's okay. That's the front facing thing I would present to people. But now I am able to talk about it because I think it's as important to say that because I know so many people, colleagues who I've lost, who were in recovery, working with people on the front lines, people who are still actively using, we get a call and they're dead of an overdose. But that was a person who had years of recovery I think it's important for anybody who's out there who's in this field of helping people, be it social work or whatever, case management, direct work, and you're scared to admit that you relapsed or you're struggling in some other way or your mental health isn't where you want it to be, that it's okay. And that part of the journey is being able to be vocal about that and to be able to share that. I think that the thing I always come back to is helping people and being of service to others. That's a core tenet of my recovery practice. It's been the key to my healing. And the other thing I'll just say is, I always talk about it like a tripod. The three things for me that are so crucial are therapy, one-on-one therapy that I have every week and a half for years with a really good clinician who pushes me. Don't find a clinician who's just yesing you to death. Having a community of other people who are in recovery, be it 12-step or just friends. And then some sort of body-based thing, be it exercise or yoga. If all those things are going well for me, those three things, like I'm healthy. If one of them's a little off or I'm slacking in one of them or two of them, I'm not doing so great. To me, that's the three components that really help keep me healthy.
0: That's how you prioritize your mental health. Mind, body, and spirit. The spirit part is working in your purpose, doing your music, yeah, and having somebody to talk to one-on-one and also moving things through our bodies because our body stores so much. And I love that you have that tripod, as we call it, <laughs> because one of the things that I've noticed that is missing in the mental health is, is the spirit, you know, that, that spirit talk, the purposeful living. How do we live our lives on purpose? How do we reconnect with our spirit? Without that, the healing journey can be really difficult. You can find yourself going back and forth. I love that you highlighted those three things. Thank you for taking the time out and talking with us today. Find a purpose. Find that community. Find whatever works for you, whether it's embodying the, quote, tripod of mind, body, and spirit, or another method that helps you to manage addiction. Next, I talk with Tahira Mayat. She's a clinically trained therapist and a shamanic medicine woman. She worked in addiction recovery centers in Florida for years, mostly working with people who are recovering from opiate addiction. She offers a bit of advice on finding the right treatment options and healing the spirit in addition to the mind and body. Welcome to the Turning Points podcast. We're so glad to have you on the show, Tahira. Could you please just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about the work that you do.
2: Hello, honored to be here. Thank you for having me. So my name is Tahira Mott. I am a shamanic medicine woman, clinical trained therapist. I've been
0: in the healing field for over 20 years. I know today is all about how do you heal from addiction, especially the way that we're going to look at it. Because you know there are some benefits to the traditional methods of how we look at it, but there's also Maybe an opportunity to have a different conversation and an opportunity to see what other methods that people can actually utilize, what's available to them, and what are we missing that could really maximize and support people through this process. And so the first question from your background of working with folks who have substance use challenges, what point does substance use become an addiction?
2: It usually ties into some type of level of trauma. And they're just trying to fill a void, which a lot of people are trying to do. And so the substances, and there's some, of course, that's more extreme than others, fill that void pretty rapidly. I believe, and just through my own experience working with these individuals, that this, it starts with a personality disorder that is in relation to some level of trauma that that person has been through and everybody deals with their trauma differently. Some people, they can process their trauma pretty well and don't have any side effects such as addictive issues where others are possibly a bit more sensitive. And so they use these substances in order to fill that void and also to escape.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. How common is addiction or substance use disorder?
2: I would say it's very common and we come from these societies and we come from these upbringings that caters to those addictive qualities without even recognizing that they are addictive qualities. Overconsumption. We come from a society where we overconsume a lot of different things. We have a lot of, sometimes I would say too much, which could ignite some type of addictive issue. It's a quality that, the trait that all of us have, and it just all depends on the person experience as to whether or not they're going to feed that void in a way where it's unhealthy or they look to come back into more of what we were talking about, more of this spiritual killing and start gaining more of a spiritual awareness as to what's going on.
0: I love how you normalize that because often we really only see when we think about addiction, we do think about substance use. When you do look at the way the society is set up, a lot of us are addicted to our phones. A lot of us are addicted to feeling a certain kind of way. Anything that leads to some sort of distraction, immediate gratification, it could really fall in so many different categories. When you talk about when somebody's ready to go through the healing process and when they feel that they're making a decision to be open to a different level of knowledge and they're saying, hey, I'm ready for treatment. What options do people have, both on the clinical and the spiritual level, for them to move through treatment?
2: Many people have different ways of moving through the path of recovery. I used to work at a treatment center, and so a lot of those souls that came in had extensive backgrounds of going in and out of the treatment centers and realizing that was like a safe haven for them which is nothing wrong with that. They just needed to get away from that environment and start over again and again and again. And that's what we do. We tend to start over again and again and again until we finally get it. So treatment centers are a great way to get oneself out of the environment and start a process where everybody around you is there pretty much moving through the same thing. You also have a beautiful support team and so forth. And then it also depends on what type of treatment centers you're looking to get into. Where I worked, it was more holistic and it was based upon art, music, and also spirituality. It just depends what one is looking to dedicate themselves to. And then some people, they are not interested in going to a treatment center. So they find their support. They find a therapist that they align to maybe a psychiatrist as well, and they start that support more on a basis of they're creating their own level of a detox and of a treatment, because maybe they're able to be responsible for that. A lot of times, depending upon the addiction, some people, they know they don't have no levels of responsibility. They need to be guided. They need to be told So the treatment center works really well where someone who's like, I know that I have an issue, but I'm also wanting to still go to work. I still want to function in life. Then there's another layer to how to treat oneself. And then as far as moving into more of the spiritual shamanic level, again, depends on the levels of addiction, what type of substances were used. And you go through a detox just like you would do any other treatment, except now we're using the plants. And some people, they will come stay with me for maybe two weeks while others will come and do the medicine and then leave and then come back and do the regular therapy with me. So to each its own, as far as what type of treatment can be done, but there's all different types of levels. There's all different types of ways. Even meditation is a great way to add into the treatment because the meditation helps to calm the nervous system down. It gets people back into themselves. It helps them to understand their mind better, their emotions better without somebody telling them. So that's the empowerment process of the meditation as well.
1: I love
0: that. So sobriety may be a helpful goal for some, but sobriety is also not the only way to recover from addiction or the harmful usage of substances. Can you speak to harm reduction? For those who are not familiar with it, can you define what harm reduction is?
2: Harm reduction is a process where, say, for someone who is still actively using and they're still moving through the process of just getting to sobriety, but they are still highly actively using, then it's all about creating some level of support, some level of safety in order to be less harm in relationship to their usage and so you really meet them where they're at for some who are actively using i'm just going to use heroin as an example because that's mostly the clients i used to work with that's such a very strong drug to get off and stay off of and so when one would reach out as far as wanting to get off in actively in usage I would be there for not only emotional support, clinical support, but also making sure that they're safe, making sure that they have different resources to go to in order to maintain as they're out there. That's just the reality. And not making them feel that just because they're actively using doesn't mean that there's not a chance. And so you create a safety container for them in a way that it's personalized for them. So that way they feel, okay, yes, I am actively in my usage, but I still am trying to get to this level of sobriety. So what's that midline that I can go to? So no matter if that's having somebody who they can call on and get that support. And so once that safe container is put in place, something on a gradual level will click for that person. To then say, okay, I am ready. Now I'm ready to go into the full treatment because they're going to hopefully grow out of that. It's like that adolescent stage of life. It's like you just rebel, you rebel until you're like, okay, it's time for me to mature a little bit and take this next step because if I don't, there's death. That, that's again another reality in some of these substance abuse. And so, You trust that whatever container you're creating for that person, they're safe enough to process as they're moving through that intensity. As they're moving through their own experiences, hopefully you could guide them into getting the full, complete treatment that they need.
0: I love that because it is meeting people where they're at versus judging them, closing the door on them. It's almost like I was thinking how you give heroin users clean needles. And they keep coming back for the clean needles. Hopefully it does click over time and they realize they have at least a point of reference that someone or something is safe. There's someone or something that I can actually trust because I may not be able to trust the needles on the street, but if they're able to see that there is someone out there versus what they've previously experienced most of their lives, it gives them a bit of hope to take, and I don't even like to use the word hope, but it gives them a bit of hope to take the next step into recovery gradually.
2: Exactly, yeah, absolutely. I'll share one more thing in relationship to the spirit and the soul journey here. My recommendation would encourage and also open yourself up if you're working with people or if you're a loved one who's listening to this, open yourself up to having more of a spiritual conversation that's not based in your own spirituality, not based in your own beliefs, because that person may be on a completely different path than you. And when you're able to meet them there, you're able to meet them at a higher level. And if you can have those conversations that are a bit more, that's beyond the clinical treatment you're now helping them as a whole human being to access who they are as a spiritual person. And so that's one of the recommendations I give to clinicians and loved ones is to take yourself out of what you feel, what you believe in and start to ask them questions based upon what they feel and what they believe in. And you'd be surprised how spiritually in tune people who have these addictive traits are it's very vast, and for them it's very real. And I would say honor that a bit more.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you here for taking the time out to talk with us today. Thank you, it was an honor. Whether you're currently looking for new ways to manage mental health and substance use, or maybe you're on a different kind of mental health journey, remember to just take it one day at a time. And if you have to take a step back, Don't forget about all the little steps in between that have moved you forward. A couple of things that I learned from our guests to keep in mind on your path, no matter what path that is, is first, find your people. Maybe this is in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Smart Recovery Groups, or any other group of like-hearted individuals. And then second, treat your mind, body, and spirit A combination of treatment options can help you find lifelong recovery and mental peace. And lastly, recovery or any mental health journey might include relapses. This is perfectly normal. If you find yourself in a relapse, this is a time to course correct and tweak how you are treating your substance use disorder or mental health. I hope you find peace wherever you are on your journey. It only seems fitting that Brennan takes us out of this one with the music that has helped him on his journey. That song is Imaginary Friend, performed by Brendan Little, co-written by Brendan Little and Daniel Stone. Thanks for listening. And visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. To hear more stories of turning points, join us for our next and final episode. We talk about moving through grief and even growing through grief. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Ann Fuse, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Daniel Roth, and Michael Aquino. And special thanks to Point32 Health and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Point32 Health is committed to connecting the community to personalized solutions that empower healthier living.